Hey, April. Hey. It's, such a, it's such an honor to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. I wanted to ask you a set of rapid fire questions. Okay. First question I have for you is, if you had to change one rule in the government process, what would you change? Oh, wow. Just one. Um, gosh, that's, there, there are so many in the government process that, that could be changed. Um, instead of like targeting just one, I think that for, for me, and I think for, for a lot of folks that work at either in government relations on the policy side or on the political side, the one thing that would be great would be to clean up the inefficiencies and the duplication of work. Um, and it's kind of one of those things, like if, you, if you're looking to get something done through um, legislative channels, you can't be in a hurry um, because government just doesn't, the big difference between working in the, the government, working in government, working in the private sector is the private sector is much more nimble and they can change things as needed and they can be more proactive. Um, and government, it's a very, it's just a very reactionary system and it's not set up to be nimble and to be um, responsive and to be able to change based on the changing needs. And I think what we've seen over the last couple of years is we've seen that kind of um, on full display is the inefficiencies of our government. Um, and their inability to, um, you know, make decisions efficiently in a timely fashion. Um, and yeah, so it, it, that would be the thing, would be to clean up the, the inefficiencies and the duplications and just, you know, make our government work um, more efficiently for the people that it's supposed to be working for. What is the hardest part about your job? Um, the hardest part is is the the waiting and um, you know just that sense of urgency. It, there's a lot of hurry up and wait, um, and then you know there's a you hear a lot like you know the timing um, isn't right or it, so it's basically kind of like the hurry up and wait and uh, uh, the just the time that it takes to get things done. Um, I come from the private sector um, in small business, family business, as well as big corporations. And, you know, so I'm used to getting things done in a very rapid, quick, efficient, like you, you have an objective, you do what you need to to meet that objective, and then you go on to the next one. Um, in government relations, it doesn't really, really work that way, because you, you really are at the mercy of, of, the, of the legislative process and, and the legislature. What is the most momentous thing in your career? Wow. Um, I think getting to, to do this, like getting to do something that not very many people get to do um, and getting to build relationships and getting to know, um, you know, decision makers and policy makers and, you know, people that are kind of like, the best in their field in terms of like content experts um, with the, the clients that I work with. Um, and that's kind of, it's just, if you'd asked me coming out of college, like 
or told me coming out of college, you're going to be a lobbyist. I would have, first, I've probably been like, what is that? And the second thing I would have been like, yeah, no, that's so not what I'm going to do. I'm not going to do anything related to government politics or any of that. Um, so yeah, sometimes it's just kind of, it's a, it, it's an interesting and fun way to make a living. And um, I know that I'm incredibly blessed to be able to do what I do. I know you and I have had conversations before this podcast about uh, travel and all. What is your favorite destination spot? Anywhere that's outdoors um, with no cell phone signals. <laughs> so, whether it's a national park or a state park or just a field in the middle of nowhere, um, just somewhere that's kind of off the beaten path. And, um, you know, because I like, you work in such a high pace and like, I don't want to say high stress, but it's, you know, it's, it's a, um, it's just, it can be stressful at times. And, and, you know, I think in the, just the world we live in, in general, we're so connected to everybody all the time. Um, that for me, um, you know, I like to kind of get away, you know, I don't want to go to a resort with a bunch of people or on a cruise ship with a bunch of people. I want to, you know, get out in the woods where it's quiet, where you can just kind of actually hear yourself think. Um, and, and more importantly, sometimes just kind of let all the, um, you know, thoughts of work, home, all that just kind of go and just sort of be. Um, and for me, so anywhere that allows me to do that is, is a place I want to go. If you had all the money in the world, mm -hmm. what would you do with it? If I had all the money in the world, I would, I would invest it in a way um, that would encourage people to just be kinder, be more forgiving be more generous with one another um, and just, you know, take, take, take the time to just talk and get to know one another. I think we kind of are living through a time where people just, they just don't take the time to connect and, or to connect in a meaningful way. And, you know, I think there's value in, you know, anyone that we meet, and conversations that we have and experiences that other people can share with us. So if I had all the money in the world, I would try to spend it in a way that would just sort of help make that happen. Like help kind of, like, I don't know if it's like one big, like, I don't know how you would do that. And I don't even know if money could make that happen. Um, but, you know, that that's what I would, would like to do with it is you know just find a way for us to just get along and appreciate our differences and you know embrace our similarities what is the one thing you want your family to remember about you um that i was there that you know that i was available and accessible and um dependable and that you know i was the the person that they could count on what is the best advice you've ever gotten? Best advice I ever got. Well, there's, there's two. One is ask for forgiveness, not for permission. Um, and then the other one is um, not everyone is going to like you. And that's okay. If you had the time capsule and you could go back to any time in the past, mm -hmm. which time would you go to? 
Hmm. Probably. Probably like the 1920s, 1930s, that era. Why? Just it was simple. I mean, I know, you know, there was a lot, they had a lot of things going on and, um, you know, they didn't have the modern conveniences that we have now. But in a lot of ways, I think that, you know, it was just a simpler, simpler way of life and you didn't have all the distractions that kind of catch us up, you know, that we get called up in today. Good answer. But still, Did that? you, you have electricity and indoor plumbing. <laughs> So, <laughs> got it <laughs> with that let's go into your past uh, can you tell us a little bit about where did you grow up and did you like politics back then So I am originally from Georgia. I grew up in, when I was growing up, it was a small suburb about 35 minutes north of Atlanta called Alpharetta. It's now a huge suburb. And like when I was growing up, we, I remember when the McDonald's opened and that was a really big deal. Um, and it was like farmland and pastures. And I mean, we had cows in our backyard. So now it is, you know, huge subdivisions and strip malls. And I mean, they have everything there. Um, and growing up was like, I had a great childhood and, and from a political standpoint, like I do remember when it was 1980 and in my class, they were talking about the Jimmy Carter Reagan election. And, you know, I knew that Jimmy Carter was from Georgia and I knew that my grandmother liked him very much. And I knew that my dad actually voted for him in his first election, but was not going to vote for him in 1980. Um, and was going to vote for this actor, Ronald Reagan, who I actually remember seeing in movies. And then I was like, you know, an actor can be president. But in my first grade class, they had this straw poll, like, you know, where they do like a little mock election and you, you know, raise your hand if you support Jimmy Carter, raise your hand if you support Ronald Reagan. And I was the only kid in my class who raised my hand for Ronald Reagan. <laughs> And when they asked me why, and I was like, because my dad said so. <laughs> so that was probably um, like my first like memory of anything political. And I mean, we grew up, like politics was discussed at dinner. Like, you know, we were kind of that traditional family, you know, we had dinner around the table at night together and we would talk about current events. Um, my dad and I had this thing. So I was an avid reader. And so while most kids wanted like fun stuff for their birthdays, like I wanted a college dictionary one year, one year I wanted a set of encyclopedias. And so my dad, we had a deal that if, you know, he would get those things for me, but, you know, I had to give him a report on or share with him a word that I learned or something that I'd read. And so this went on from the time I was in the second grade until I graduated high school, actually. But it was always something current or, or relative to something that I'd read or that was going on. And so while they weren't necessarily political driven conversations, they were definitely timely and, um, you know, applicable to, you know, anything that I would read or, or learn, he, we would discuss it until it was tied into kind of what was going on in, in current day. Um, but growing up, I never had an interest, like did not, you know, think that I would be So it, it, it wasn't even something that I'm not even sure I really knew what lobbying was at, you know, until I was doing it. Um, 
but yeah, I didn't grow up necessarily looking to go into politics or particularly politically involved family outside of my grandmother. Like she, she was pretty politically active in terms of she'd host fundraisers and, you know, she was very active in, in the, in her party, but, um, you know, immediate family, it was just dinner conversations and, and current and, um, you know, I learned to develop very strong opinions and fortunately I had, um, parents and, and a dad especially who, while he didn't always agree with my opinions, definitely encouraged me to have them. And after high school, I see that you went into economics. What, yeah, so I went, what did you get into that? Um, funny story. So I went to the University of Georgia and um, I really liked being in school. And so I changed my major a lot. And so back then you only needed, I think like a hundred... 150 or 160 credit hours to graduate. So when I finally finished college, I had like 225 hours. So I pretty much majored in everything except for um, agriculture. Um, so I was pre-law, pre-med, pre-vet, journalism. I was an English major for a while. I did art appreciation for a minute. So I had this vast... Um, array of classes on my transcript and it's funny they're like oh yeah a lot of when folks see like when I graduated versus when I started college the the assumption is that I struggled and didn't make good grades which wasn't the case like I made excellent grades I just really liked the learning process and I still do like I you know I just like the process of of learning and and learning different things and I couldn't just decide on one thing I wanted to do. Like I really was that kid that went to college and had no idea what they wanted to do when they grew up. Um, and so after, you know, being there for over five years, my dad's like, you cannot make college a career. They're not gonna pay you to continue, like you pay them. They, they're not gonna start paying you to go to, go to college forever. Um, he's like, so you, you know, you need to, find a, find a degree path and let's, let's wrap this up. And so I, I went for only the second time in my whole time at Georgia, I actually went and sat down with my counselor and she was shocked. She's like, oh my gosh, you're still here. And I was like, yeah, because I saw her like on kind of like first or second day of enrollment. And this is like, you know, five years later. And I asked her, I was like, okay, like I've got to graduate. Like I've got to finish and wrap this up. And I'm like, what am I closest to? Like what, is the closest path for me to finish to finish my degree. And so she looked and I had actually, I had taken a lot of, of business classes and I didn't realize it, but I had taken, you know, all but like two of the econ classes required for an econ degree. And I think for me with economics, it was numbers and like supply and demand and just the whole premise of economic cycles. Um, it made sense to me how things were cyclical and, um, you know, as much as we like to um, try to define economics and kind of make it finite and, and make it one thing, you know, economies, whether it's the U.S. economy, the world economy, you know, your local community economy, economies are cyclical and they're ever-changing. And, you know, some of it can be mitigated um, but a lot of it can't. A lot of it is just part of the natural cycle. I mean, you're going to have periods of, of exceptional growth. And unfortunately, 
you know, once you grow to a, a certain point, you're going to have, you know, a period of contraction. And it's just, it's kind of how it goes. And that, I got it and I understood it and it made sense to me. Um, and so that's why I've taken all these econ classes because, you know, I take one and I'm like, oh, well, I, I really like that. And so when we sat down, she's like, well, two more classes and you got a degree in economics. And I was like, great. She's like, two more English classes and you have a, a minor in English. And I was like, well, let's do that. So I signed up for all four of those classes the next semester and, and sadly <laughs> had to graduate and, you know, get on with the real world. Um, so, yeah, so that was my my college path, <laughs> which is incredibly non-traditional. Like, it was funny. I've listened to several of your your podcasts and, and other other folks. And I'm like, wow, like I have the most bizarre, like everybody was so focused and knew what they were doing when they went to college and had their major. And I'm like, I don't have that at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's OK. And, and, and what happened after that? So what was your first job? And, and I see that you were also working as a co-owner for Solid as a Rock. Right. So can you tell us, walk us through that? Yeah. So after college, so during college, I actually had several jobs. Um, I worked as um, I worked at a bookstore and I worked at a bar and I worked at the Gap and the Gap was actually my first job. Like I started working for them when I was 16 and still in high school. And when I was in college, they had a management trainee program. And so I went through that while I was in college. Um, and then when I finished, um, I went through the next phase of, of management training and then got placed in a store. Um, I, the very first store I worked in was the Gap at North Lake Mall in Atlanta, which has since closed down. Um, and then from there, I kind of worked my way up the management ladder with the Gap. So, you know, from um, intern to, or management trainee to assistant manager, associate manager, store manager, general manager. Um, then I went on to do special projects for the GAP with regards to labor studies. So I basically traveled all around the country to different stores and would basically evaluate their efficiency from everything from how efficient they were on the sales floor to how they process shipment to how they maintain the store. Um, I did a management evaluations. I mean, I was not somebody that they really looked forward to coming into their stores. Um, but for me, I loved it because it was a lot of like talking to people and monitoring and watching and just kind of really looking how things work um, and, and realize like there were some stores that had um, great best practices that, you know, we were able to kind of um, condense into a formal way to kind of roll out to other stores. And then there were, were, were some stores that just, you know, needed some help. So it was a, a great way to sort of share best practices from, I think at that point they had close to 1200 stores domestically. So it was a way to share best practices and improve store systems. And for me, it was just kind of really cool to travel around and just um, evaluate and monitor and, you know, not be um, changing around floor sets at two in the morning you know, like I did when I was actually in a general manager in a store. Um, and then from there, because um, I was on a team of four, that there were four of us that were doing this, um, they decided to actually make it a position. And it was a called, it was a regional labor manager. And they ended up having two, one for the, the East and one for the West. And so I became the, the regional labor manager 
um, for the East and I was based out of Atlanta and it was basically just working with stores to help them run more efficiently, um, you know, help them run, um, you know, get the maximum amount of productivity on the, the least amount of payroll because in retail payroll control is everything. Um, and, you know, you, you don't have an, an infinite bucket, you know, all stores have a budget. Um, and so, yeah, so that's, that was my last position with, with the GAP was regional labor manager. Um, and it was great. Like, um, the GAP taught me pretty, you know, it really gave me um, a lot of just foundational principles with regards to business and management and the importance of, you um, you know, payroll control and budgeting and productivity and, you know, all those things that go into um, running any business, whether it's retail or whether it's construction. Um, so it was definitely a good training ground. Um, and, you know, things I learned with the gap, I still, you know, still benefit me today. And how it happened after that? I mean, so, yeah. So in 2000, it was actually 2001, they were actually going to consolidate down to one labor manager and i was gonna i was asked you know if i wanted that job which you know I was like well i like my job of course you know i want it but then i found out that i would no longer be based in atlanta that i would have to i would either be based in san francisco or new york and i lived in new york working with the gap i lived in san francisco working with the gap and while i like both places like i am you know, I love New York City and it was great living there and I still love to visit and the same with San Francisco, but I am a, I'm a Southern girl and, you know, I just, and my family's here and friends and, you know, I just, I couldn't see myself living there permanently. And it was kind of one of those things too, like I was at, you know, I was 28, I was, you know, kind of getting close to 30. And I was like, you know, maybe I just want to do something different. And so I told um, my boss at the time, I told him, I was like, Tom, I think that um, I think I'm going to turn you down. And yeah, I think I'm going to go ahead and, and resign. Like, and so, I, you know, during that conversation, it was, hey, we want to offer you this big job. And, you know, at the end of the conversation, it resulted in me just saying, you know, yeah, you know, I think I'm good. I think I'm done. Um, and Tom, he was fine. He's like, not exactly how I thought this conversation was going to go, but, you know, um, obviously I wish he'd reconsider and all that. But so after that conversation, um, and, and it's funny because normally with the gap, when people would turn in their resignation and even though you give your two weeks, they never really make you work the two weeks. And so I was kind of thinking, well, you know, I have all this vacation and all this time accrued, um, you know, maybe I won't have to work out. Oh no, like I had to work out not just two weeks, but a month. <laughs> and, and even after, at the end of that month, I think I could have probably stayed on for another month. But I was like, all right, guys, like, you know, <laughs> you're really going to go. Um, but after I, I resigned, I came home and I was like, oh, gosh, what am I going to do now? Um, didn't really have a plan. I mean, I guess it, it's funny. My dad always laughs because I'm not a, I've never been the person who's all caught up on, on the security of the, of a job or, cause I guess in my mind, like I can always bartend or I can always, like, I can always find a way to make a living. And so quitting, quitting a job, whereas all my friends were like, you did what? And my mom was like, why would you do that? My grandmother was like, you left this job with benefits and a company car and all like, what are you thinking? <laughs> 
And my dad was like, all right. He's like, so you're definitely my daughter. <laughs> and he asked me, he's like, well, what are you going to do? And I was like, I have no idea. Like, I really, I don't have a plan. I just knew that that wasn't what I wanted to do. And I've always said that when you don't enjoy something, that's when you stop doing it. Um, and yeah, so I didn't have a plan. And my dad at that time had moved his construction business to North Carolina. And that's solid as a rock. They're they, his company um, did poured concrete foundations. So like basements, retaining walls, parking garages, anything that any um, vertical structure that's made with concrete. He, he built and um, his business was growing in North Carolina and he's like well you know you can just come and work with me for a while he's like you can you know handle the finances do the the bookkeeping I was like so basically you want me to come be your secretary and he's like yeah basically and I was like right I have a college degree and I'm gonna go be my dad's secretary I was like well why not so <laughs> I came up here and it ended up being a little more than his, his secretary. So I worked with vendors to negotiate pricing. Um, and uh, there's probably some concrete companies in North Carolina that are very glad that I'm not negotiating his unit pricing anymore. Um, I learned how to do read estimates and do takeoffs and um, learned how to deal with builders who thought they knew everything, um, deal with county inspectors who didn't really know their job that well. <laughs> Um, and then also met some just great people in the construction industry. Um, like North Carolina home builders are probably some of the best people um, that I had the opportunity to meet. Um, and then and some fantastic women builders, men builders, um, subcontractors from framers to uh, people who put down the floor, sheetrock painters. Um, just a, a great community of people and was able to kind of take the, the business sort of foundation from the gap and parlay that over into construction. And it was kind of, it was also fun for me to sort of be a female in this male dominated industry. And, you know, I think one of the best compliments I got was from a builder that had been building and been building things longer than I've been alive. Um, and he, uh, after, you know, we were kind of going over his plans and going through what he wanted with his foundation and kind of just going through everything. And at the end of it, and he's like, you know, he's like, I went into this thinking, I can't believe Bob is sending his daughter to talk to me. He's like, but you know, he goes, you know, he's like, I'm impressed. He's like, you, you know, these plans better than your dad. <laughs> he just, we'll, we'll keep that between us. And he's like, yeah, you, he's like, I'll deal with you anytime. And it, it was just, it was just, for me at least, it was nice to be in an environment that, like I said, that is male dominant, but be able to hold your own and actually have, you know, men that have been in that industry for so long kind of respect that you know what you're doing. Um, and it also is kind of one of those things, like if you can survive in construction, you can do anything. Because <laughs> it is, it's, while there, there are so many great things and, you know, my my whole family from my dad, grandparents, uncles are all in some aspect of construction. So it's something I've been around my whole life. Um, so I've seen the good, the bad and the ugly of it, but it's, it's, it's a tough business and huge respect for, for all those folks who continue to work in that field. Cause um, when you talk about the, the cycles of the economy, um, that industry is completely dependent on those cycles. <laughs> so completely. 
Um, so that's how I ended up with, with Solid as a Rock and working with my dad. And um, then the recession hit and um, my dad had men that had worked with him for 20 years. And I didn't, and I knew like what his cash flow was like. And I knew that it wasn't, it wasn't feasible for him to continue to pay me at the expense of somebody that had been with him for 20 years that had a family. And so once again, I went to my dad, I was like, all right, I was like, I'll still help you in ways that, you know, with billing and things like that, like on a, but you're not going to pay me and I'm, I'm going to find something else. And so oddly enough, I went back to the gap. It's kind of like, you know, you go back to what you know. So I went back to the gap and it was really just supposed to be a temporary thing. Like, I mean, I went back to a friend of mine was a manager at the gap down in South Park. And I really told her, I was like, I just want to work like part-time until I figure out, you know, I've got money saved up until I figure out what I wanted, like what my next career is going to be. And so before I knew it, within a month, there was um, a store, the store in Greenville, South Carolina needed a general manager. And so I'm like, might as well, Greenville's not that far. And so I went back to the gap for a year. Um, and that was 2009, 2010. And then I realized that like I had changed so much, just like, I guess matured and and just the way I worked that, um, and kind of being in an environment where I was in kind of empowered to make decisions. And basically, you know, my dad, like we ran that business together and then I'm back working for somebody. Um, and I realized like, I'm not cut out to work in corporate America anymore. Like, it's just not, doesn't suit me. So I did that for a year and I was like, all right, like, you know, that's, not where I want to be. So I left the gap again. And then I worked at a friend of mine who had a little boutique in Burkeville village, worked there for a little bit. Um, in the meantime, like I had worked with on Elizabeth Dole's campaign in 2002, I worked out of their, the Salisbury office in 2004, I actually, um, spent a month working with the RNC on the Bush Cheney campaign in Lima, Ohio of all places. So kind of, you know, and my dad was kind enough to kind of give me these little intervals of, of hiatus away from, from Solid as a Rock to kind of work on these different things. And, and it really was like with Elizabeth was kind of my first actual political sort of experience. And that came because I met her in Atlanta when I was volunteering with the Red Cross and just adored her as a person and really respected her and, and what she had done in her life. And so when she was running for Senate in North Carolina, like I knew I wanted to be a part of that because I, I just thought so much of her. Um, and it was great. Like it, it was really cool. Like being in the Salisbury office, I got to kind of see all aspects of, of the campaign and really get a crash course into, um, into political campaigns. And they're not as glamorous as you think they are. Um, there's a lot of people doing a lot of work. Um, and then that led to like through folks that I met who were working with um, Elizabeth, um, they reached out to me in 2004 and was like, hey, we have an opening on our team in Lima, Ohio, you know, would you like to come and work with us for a month? So I, I was like, well, sure. And that was a completely different experience because you're kind of, it, it was in Lima, Ohio, which was very different. Um, but just that was kind of that national campaign, presidential campaign was like a whole different ball game. But again, it was like a lot of work, but it was very cool work. And, you know, 
got to meet a lot of people that I otherwise wouldn't got to meet. And so after 2004, you know, just kind of, you know, I hosted, my fan, my parents hosted a few fundraisers for Elizabeth Dole and, and other candidates that they supported. So I had a, you know, had a little bit of a fundraising experience for political folks in there. So in 2010, as I'm kind of like in between, don't really know, like, what am I going to do? Um, I get a, an opportunity to be a fundraising uh, consultant for the North Carolina House Republican Caucus. And at first, um, you know, when I was approached, I was like, you know, I kind of need a job that's going to pay me. And they're like, oh, well, you'll get paid for this. And I'm like, okay, so what? And I'm like, you know, I've raised money for folks and I've seen my grandmother and my dad, but, you know, a consultant, like, how does this work? And so I'm like, you know what? Why not? Let's try this. Let's see how this goes. And turns out, like, I, I, I'm not bad at, at asking for money. And I kind of had a knack for working with candidates and kind of coaching them on how to raise money and, and build their fundraising network. And so I did that from 2010 until 2015. Um, and 2015 is when I got the opportunity and um, with my first government affairs client. And that came through Connect South. And I'd known Tony, um, the founding partner at Connect South for a while. He's a UGA grad as well. Um, and he, you know, kind of worked on in the, the political side in Georgia um, for a while and then kind of realized that um, that a lot of the, the lobbyists and a lot of the government affairs firms were also law firms. And he thought that there was a place for a firm that did nothing but focus on policy. It wasn't a law firm. Um, it wasn't lobbyists that are also lawyers. It was just purely public policy. Um, and whether it be, you know, federal government, state government, local government um, initiatives, like, you know, if there's a referendum and it, you know, public initiatives with regards to policy. And so he started, he and, and his partner, they started Connect South. And so just throughout the years, Tony and I had conversations and he, he knew that I was fundraising and he, you know, knew that I had a, a good network of contacts in North Carolina, just between working in construction in North Carolina and, and working, um, you know, on the political side and, and working in fundraising. I had this good network and he had a client that he that they represented in Georgia who was looking for a lobbyist in North Carolina. And so he called me and he's like, are you interested? And I was like, sure. And I was like, what exactly am I going to do? <laughs> and he's like, he goes, well, he's like, you know, and the client at the time, he's like, you know, they, at, at this juncture, they didn't have any like pressing needs. It was more just kind of, you know, keep them informed of anything that would affect their industry. Um, and then, you know, as kind of the relationship built, obviously there was different legislative um, or policy, either initiatives or changes they, they were looking for. Um, and so it, he's like, you know, you're just gonna use your relationships and build more relationships and work on good, good policy. And so my first question, like I wanted to know like what space they were in, and this particular client is in the behavioral health space, which is something that is just personal to me. Um, I have a really good friend who has bipolar disorder and um, 
you know, I've kind of seen how that can affect not just the individual, but the family, um, especially when it goes undiagnosed or when they aren't able to get the medication that they need or when they stop taking the medication that they need to be on. Um, and I've also kind of, you know, seen the lack of services out there. So once I knew kind of what, what field they were in, then I was kind of, you know, I was like, sign me up. Like, I won't let me do this. And so that kind of, that was in 2015. And so now six, seven clients later, um, they're still, still with me. Um, they're still, you know, my first, uh, client, um, still very passionate about the work I do for them. And then what I've done kind of with all my clients is, you know, for me, I can't work on something that I personally don't believe in. So I'm, you know, I've walked away from a few from prospective clients um, because it's just, it's hard to be, it's hard to kind of work as hard as you have to work on policy initiatives when you don't believe in them. And, you know, I kind of sort of my whole, um, the way I kind of look at public policy is good public policy helps at least one person while harming none. And it's that second piece that often gets overlooked in a lot of public policy that we see out there is that harming no one. You wanna help at least one person. Ideally, you wanna help a lot of people, but in order to help those people, you don't wanna harm anybody. And so that's kind of the litmus test for the clients that I've, I've taken on over the years. And um, yeah, so that brings me to where I am now. And um, yeah, still kind of pinch myself, like how exactly did I get here? Because it's not, it's not the path that my peers and, and colleagues in this industry had taken. Like I was talking to a friend of mine who is also a lobbyist. I was like, you know, I'm doing this, this interview. And she's like, oh my gosh, that's great. And I was like, is it really? I was like, because I don't have like this, like clean path to how I got here. And I told her, I was like, you know, I'm sure one of the questions is like, how did you get here? And, and she's like, well, just tell them. And I'm like, I mean, it's a it's a very twisty, twisty path. So yeah, that's okay. kind of, I guess, not really the short version, but the, that's kind of it. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, I don't think, I mean, everybody's unique. So I think what, where you got I mean, how you got here is something really cool and interesting too. So what, can you tell us like, what is the most favorite issue you've worked on? So probably it's one of the issues I'm working on right now. Um, which is a, a little controversial, um, and that is medical cannabis in North Carolina. Um, and again, it's one of those things that's it's personal to me. Um, my mom has um, Parkinson's, and cannabis therapy has shown remarkable results in Parkinson's patients in terms of improved mobility, um, fewer tremors, um, you know, improved quality of life, and even longevity. And, you know, I want her to have legal access to that. And, um, you know, I have friends who are veterans who have suffered with PTSD and other conditions as a result of their service. Um, some of, you know, who were kind of on the verge of, of taking their own life until they um, were, you know, approached and, and discovered cannabis therapy and, and the benefits it has with PTSD. Um, and so when I was uh, approached and asked to work on it, it was something that it was, I didn't even hesitate. It was like, yeah, I mean, there was a part of me that was like, okay, there's some, some folks that I have relationships with and that I've known for a while that this is, may take them, 
you know, a little bit of back and, you know, it might be one of those issues that they just can't work with me on, um, which is fine because I, you know, not, not everyone is going to be supportive of, of everything that I'm working on. Um, but um, I feel like I've got good enough relationships with folks in the General Assembly that uh, they know that I'm, I'm doing it not, not for selfish reasons, but because it's something that I, I believe in. And I think that, you know, individuals that have chronic and uh, terminal illnesses that are debilitating deserve access to any treatment that's available that, that may help or provide a little bit of relief. And while medical cannabis isn't the, the silver bullet for everybody, um, it's proven to be incredibly beneficial to thousands of patients who, who take it. And I think there's patients in North Carolina who deserve legal access to it and shouldn't have to go to the black market or to other states. Yeah, I know like in your illustrious career, you must have a lot of accolades, but it's the mistakes which I feel we can learn a lot more from. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us like one mistake which you feel you've learned a lot from? So I think that the one mistake is, and, and I've made so many, I've made many and I, and I learned from all of them. So again, it's kind of hard to, to pick just one. Um, I think that I've learned that you have to keep your inner circle tight and you, you have to be very careful who you share what with. And, you know, I think, you know, just kind of naivety in general, um, you, and I'm sure many of us have been there, you, you trust the wrong person or you bring the wrong person into your circle and um, just share too much. And, and sometimes that, you know, and that can come back to bite you in the butt, um, you know, in a way you didn't expect it to. And so I think I've learned over the years that, you know, a small circle, a tight circle of, of just quality individuals is way better than like quantity. Um, and I think that's, you know, not just in, in friendships, I think just in, and just, you know, the way we live our life too, you know, the quality of your life, I think is way more important than the quantity you have in years. Um, and so I think that that's kind of the, the lesson I, I, I learned and, and there's, there's so many, so many more, but that's, that's probably the one that's kind of stuck with me the longest, um, is the, you know, keep your circle, keep your circle tight. Yeah. Well surround yourself with, surround yourself with people that make you better that, you know, that, and that, you know, no, like I, um, like I, um, have a business partner in, in a, and I still do, I still have a partnership in political work, even though he does most of the work and I just, you know, draft an invitation here and there. Um, but he's smarter than me in so many ways. And he's kind of like, not just my partner, but he's, you know, my therapist and, you know, the older brother I never had. And, um, but you just, you have to surround yourself with good people, good people that challenge you to be better, that will be honest with you that will tell you the unabridged truth, um, will let you know when you're getting as little too full of yourself. Like you just need people like that around you um, and the importance of that. And, you know, I think most of us early in, you know, early on, I was fortunate to kind of make the mistake of not knowing the value of having the right people. And, you know, once you learn that lesson, you really become selective and who you have around. 
Very cool. And finally, any words of advice for anyone who wants to get into government relations? You know, I think the best advice I can give is um, don't be bashful and don't be intimidated by it. And if it's something that you want to do that you're interested in, then, you know, reach out to someone who's currently doing it and talk to them, find a mentor, um, and just, you know, learn about the issues that are important to you and kind of sort of look and see, like, you know, is someone working on that? Um, you know, the great thing about our system of government is you don't have to be a registered lobby lobbyist to actually lobby for a cause. Like, you know, citizens can you know, it's the, the people's house for a reason, you know, citizens can go up and, and lobby for or against something that's important and meaningful to them. Um, and I think that anyone looking to get into this, you, you need to go into it knowing that it's not always easy, but it is incredibly rewarding. And, um, you know, the best way to, to get into something is to you know, jump in with both feet and, Surround yourself with with people that can make you better and that can help you lift you up versus drag you down. April, I can say with the few minutes you've shared with me, um, you have been such an epitome of communication and the knowledge you have. Um, it's pretty hard for anyone not to like you. So I think I'm, I'm pretty, it's pretty sure you've done your dad proud. Thank you so much for sharing your 30 minutes, valuable 30 minutes with me much i i really appreciate it this was i was a little nervous going into this but you've made this very enjoyable <laughs> thank you thank you